Isn't that great news, what you just saw up there? Yes, indeed. That's why they call it the gospel. It's the best news you'll ever see because what would it be like if none of that was true? Oh, it would be a miserable thing. I praise God for that. Well, I conclude my W series today in Proverbs, and I can't believe that it was the end of February when I started. I was going to have six weeks, and then came bad weather, and then came Easter holidays, then came the candidating for Pastor Nick, then I was gone three weeks, and so it kind of stretched itself out to here we are the first week in June, and and now I'm concluding that series. And today, I'm talking about the thing we do most in life while we're awake. It's work. And Proverbs is talking about the pitfalls. So today, I want to look at work and avoiding the pitfalls that comes with us. Several years ago, U.S. News and World Report said that the average American in his or her lifetime will spend six months sitting at stoplights, eight months opening junk mail, one year looking for misplaced objects. For me, that's a lot longer. Two years making calls to people who aren't home, And for me, many years, I'm sure, being put on hold. How many like being put on hold forever and ever? Hallelujah, amen. I don't. Four years doing housework. For some, that's less. Five years waiting in line and six years eating. I like that. More recent research says that the average worker spends two and a half hours every day with email, not including personal email and social media. But by far the two activities that we will do the most in our lifetime are sleeping 22 years and work 12 years. Proverbs has a lot to say about these two activities, sleeping and working. And basically it says when you're supposed to be working, don't be sleeping. And so we're going to look at work today. And I want to start with a collection of verses from Genesis right into the New Testament on work. So as we go through the Proverbs, I'll pull them out in the sermon. But would you stand right now in honor of God's word as I read about work, the inspired word of God? Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it all began here, and it says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Here comes the trouble. Genesis 3.17-19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Exodus 28 and 9. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Ecclesiastes 2, 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 12, 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 14, 23. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or work, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You may be seated. I hope these verses have enlightened your hearts and minds because when we think of work, for many people today, it's a negative thought. They're thinking all kinds of bad things like this is hard and it's unfulfilling, it's drudgery and it's challenging in ways that I don't want it to be and it's an unfortunate necessity and it's like a prison. And there are lots of people who struggle on their jobs. But I want you to know that work is a good thing. Work is actually a God thing. And God wants you to enjoy your work even as you go tomorrow. But when Adam and Eve sinned, everything changed. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden and work became difficult. And ever since that time, it's been a difficult thing going to work, and there have been obstacles in the way, and people have developed bad habits. But I want you to understand that God wants your work to be fulfilling. He wants it to be good for you. In fact, if you understand this, this might transform how it is you go to work tomorrow. Because I believe it is in the economy of the Scripture that God wants work to be an act of worship. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul said, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Do it as an act of worship. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 4, you find the very first act of worship. It's two guys who went to work by the name of Cain and Abel, and they brought the first fruit. They brought the first fruits of their work to the Lord. It was an act of worship. Unfortunately, it went south there, but it was still an act of worship. And so what Solomon is doing, is he's trying to get us into the heart of worship. He's trying to get us to what it really is about, and he goes into some areas that got off track, and so what he's trying to do is give us some counsel, 3,000 years worth of counsel, so that today we can also understand what work is all about and gain some lessons that will help us on Monday morning. It is still applicable. So the big idea of my sermon is strive to be the kind of worker that God wants you to be. And what we're going to find out is that there are four kinds of workers in Proverbs. Three of them, God says, don't be like them. One of them says, this is the kind of worker that God commends. And so we want to look at them today because there are distortions that you don't want to be part of. So let's look at the four kinds of workers. The first three you don't want to be, the last one you do. Type one worker is what I'm calling the deceitful worker. This worker says, I'm going to get a lot of money in my work, but I'm going to do it through deception. I'm going to do it through dishonesty. This work is easy, and it pays well. But today we are living in the worst time in history for unscrupled people who are going to try to come and deceive you and take your money. And the big culprit is technology. They didn't have it back in those days. And today there are all kinds of things going on. Banks are being hacked into. In fact, I saw this week China hacked into the U.S. government, every branch, it said basically, of our agencies. And this is what's going on. And people are doing this to get money and to get rich. Now I hope none of us are 
deceitful workers. But the temptation is there to cut corners and do little things we shouldn't do to make some money. And Proverbs is saying, don't be a deceitful worker. And there are a number of methods that deceitful workers use. I want to highlight two of them from Proverbs. Method number one is cheating people on a business deal. Cheating people on a business deal. Proverbs 11.1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And in Proverbs 16.11 it says, All the weights in the bag are the Lord's concern. So back then they didn't have technology to the cheat. They would weigh out certain things, put a stone on it. That was supposed to be what it should be in its weight. And then you would pay for the pound. But what happened is that the word weight literally means a perfect stone. These businessmen would sand down the stone so you really wouldn't know it was lighter or they'd make a chip in it. And so when they would sell their materials, they would profit a little bit, and over the course of a period of time, they'd make money that they shouldn't make. Now, we may not use weights today, but we can still find ways to cheat other people. Some car repair places charge for work they don't do. People waste time on the job. Sometimes they pad their hours. And there are many little ways that we find that we can cheat to get our money. And Solomon is saying, theft by deception is always wrong and God hates it. Now, you want to remember some modern day examples of theft by deception in business deals? Just think of 15 years ago. What was it? What was the big thing? Enron. And so we saw there was something played out that was really bad. In fact, there is a deception going on that's been named after somebody, and it's called a Ponzi scheme named after Charles Ponzi. Now that you've heard his name, forget it. We don't want to be involved in those kinds of things. But there's another kind of deception in Proverbs. Method number two is to take advantage of the disadvantaged. And to get money from the widows and the poor and those who can't make their way. And there are all kinds of schemes going on that way. To cheat those who have no money. And so they come to widows and they charge them exorbitant fees for repairs and a great amount of interest on loans and those kinds of things. And people have no conscience today. They're going to come and take advantage of the people who have no means at all. And so Proverbs 22, 23 says... Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. When you take advantage of the disadvantaged, it catches the Lord's attention. And Proverbs 10.4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. The word negligent in Hebrew actually means the deceitful. And so if you are deceitful in your business dealings, you may make more money, but your character is gone. It is nothing in the eyes of God. And Proverbs eleven eighteen says that you become wicked. The wicked earn deceptive wages. Any kind of deception on the job is wrong. Now the second half of Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 11 says to do your work literally by the hand. And that means do honest labor. Whenever you get a check, make sure you've done a good amount of work for that money because all unethical and immoral ways to earn money are wrong before the Lord. So we've encountered the deceitful worker, the dishonest worker, going to make money at your, at your disadvantage because he's cheating you somehow. But there's a second kind of worker. It's type 2 worker. It's the lazy worker. And Solomon has zero tolerance for this lazy worker. He calls him the sluggard. 
That's just a really interesting word in itself. It just doesn't sound appealing to me. Sluggard, the lazy person. And so 16 times he calls out the sluggard in Proverbs. Three times he puts the sluggard in a poem and talks about this sluggard in Proverbs. Now, I've been here almost two years, and I know that within the walls of this church there are no sluggards here at Old North Church. So I'm not going to deal with that with a whole lot, but I want to give you some information from Proverbs about these people. And we're going to see this portrait of a foolish, lazy person in a poem in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 13 and 16. And I hope you can see the humor in this, except it's so pathetic. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it to his mouth. And the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And so you see the characteristics of a sluggard. Four of them I want you to see. Characteristic number one. The sluggard is great at making excuses not to have to work. He's good at this. And in this poem it says, there's a lion in the street. He doesn't know that, but he's saying, I can't go to work today because if I go out there, this lion's going to eat me and I can't go to work. In Canfield, when you have a bad uh, weather forecast, the sluggard will say, I can't go to work. There's going to be a thunder shower and that thunder shower is going to wash me away in the stream and I'll die. I can't go to work. And these sluggards find all kinds of ways, all kinds of excuses to call in sick and not show up. In fact, Ben Franklin said, he that is good at making excuses is seldom good at anything else. Characteristic number two, the sluggard is great at sleeping, verse 14. He's totally lazy. He loves his bed. And he said he's like a hinge on a door. He goes this way in his mattress and this way in his mattress. He turns around on his tummy and grabs his pillow. And then he goes this way and this way. He just loves to turn on his bed. And what it's saying here is you can't get this guy to do anything. You can't light a fire under him. He must be prodded. He's anything but a self-starter. The third characteristic in the poem is he's great at handouts. Verse 15. And here we see laziness to a maximum. Here's where I see a lot of humor. It's hyperbole to make his point. It says gravity takes his hand down to the plate. He's too lazy to use a muscle. He takes gravity down to his plate. And then it says that he's too lazy to fight gravity to bring up his hand to his mouth again. He wants a handout. He wants everybody to do it for him. He doesn't want anything by himself. He wants everybody to prepare his food, serve it to him. And if it doesn't happen, he won't eat well. In fact, Proverbs 12, 27 says, When the slugger goes hunting... He'll pull the arrow back and shoot the prey, but he's too lazy to clean it and eat it. Give me a handout. Characteristic number four. He's great at kidding himself, verse 16. It's incredible. But the sluggard actually believes he's smarter than seven other people. He can't see how bad off he is. He can't see how lazy he is. And people will say, you know what, you really need to step up here. He said, oh, you know, I've got this whole system beat. He understands what he's doing, but no, no. He won't take a lesson from the ant, Proverbs says. He won't prepare his food in summer so he'll have it in winter. And so he goes poor and hungry. And then it also says in Proverbs, he'll irritate his boss if he doesn't get fired and he'll never get promoted. Because he is great at kidding himself, will not see reality. And so he lives in sin. A lazy person displeases the Lord. 
And if he lives in sin, it's not a good place to be. And eventually, the sluggard will destroy himself and it will all come to an end somehow because people will stop giving him all those handouts. Now we go to a third kind of worker. It's called what I'm calling the excessive worker. And here's where I'm going to really maybe meddle a little bit. Most of you are probably, I hope, not deceitful. Most of you, I hope, are not lazy, but we're probably living in a generation where many of us are excessive workers. And we know this person in our modern day as a workaholic, a workaholic. And this is a real problem in our world. There are people, and you might be one of them, who work themselves to extremes at the cost of their health, their family, and their relationship with God. Now, this is surprising, but as far as I can tell, looking at six dozen verses in Proverbs, all the verses on work, I couldn't find one verse on excessive work. I couldn't find one workaholic in all of Proverbs, and I asked myself, why? There's got to be something going on here, and I think I have an answer. They didn't have that problem back in the days of ancient Israel 3,000 years ago. There weren't workaholics. There weren't excessive workers. Why? Because they were an agricultural society directed by what? The sun. So when the sun came up, they worked. When the sun came down, they quit working. And when the hours came in the evening, when darkness set in, they'd sit around, have meal, fellowship, tend to the animals that needed to be tended, and they went to bed early. This kind of lifestyle persisted in the world for thousands of years, actually until the 19th century. And then along came the Industrial Revolution and the invention of what? The light bulb. And everything changed. Agricultural life gave way to industry and technology, and suddenly People were working day and night, seven days a week, and our modern inventions made it easier and more compelling to keep working and to keep working and to keep working. And now we live in a modern world that's totally out of balance when it comes to work. And we're sacrificing our health and our relationships at the expense of our work. And we've lost very much the ability to limit our work and relate to our family and to our friends and to get proper rest. Now, if Solomon were writing Proverbs today, 3,000 years later, I think he'd have a lot to say. And I think he'd appeal to the scriptures that were already written. And I think he'd tell us not to work too many hours a day. He'd say, you know what? God made that sun for a reason, not just to give us light and to grow things, but to limit how long you work every day. And when the sun goes down, limit your work, so to speak. You might be working a night job, but you've got to limit your work. And then the other building, six days and one rest. And so each day, the sun limits. Each week, the day limits, and you are to limit your work. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 4, 6, Solomon wrote Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He hints at this. Better is one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. A workaholic in the world with two hands and all the stress is not worth it. And I think Solomon would tell us that we don't need all the things we think we need. We're a culture of accumulation. 
And we want more and more. And so to get more, we work harder and harder and longer and longer. And then we go into debt to buy the things that we want. And we work harder still to pay off the debt. And as someone said, we spend money we don't have for things we don't need to stay ahead of people we don't know. That's America. And all the while, at the biggest sacrifice of all, our relationships. Many of us simply don't take enough time to be with the people in our lives that matter most, the people we do life with. And we work too much, and in doing so, we create what I call familiar strangers. And when work becomes our preoccupation, we steal something that belongs to somebody else. We steal ourselves from them and our time from them. And we deceive ourselves to think that others won't be wounded if we, if we allow this to happen. And that someday we'll make it right. But no, that day never comes. Andy Stanley, in his book, Choosing to Cheat, tells a parable about a rock. A good friend comes by your house one day and opens his car trunk. And inside is this 20-pound rock. And he hands you the rock and he says, I really need you to stand here on the sidewalk holding this rock until I come back. And he tells you not to move and that I'll be back shortly and then I'll get the rock. And you have no idea what in the world is going on, but you trust your friend and you agree. And he thanks you profusely and he drives away and you're holding the rock. An hour goes by. At first it was easy. Now every muscle in your body is screaming. Now your friend comes by and you're so relieved. He's going to get the rock. And then he says to you, you know what? I was delayed. I have one more errand to run. Please hold the rock a little longer and I'll make it up to you when I return. And you trust your friend and you agree. But you say, please hurry. Another half an hour goes by and you can hardly hold the rock any longer. And you're beginning to lose your grip and you tell yourself, I can hold this, I can hold this, but your body is losing the weight and down goes the rock on the concrete sidewalk and it shatters into a dozen pieces. Just then, your friend pulls up in his car and with bewilderment says, hey, you said you'd hold the rock, what happened? And he thinks you suddenly dropped the rock, but you know that it was a long time in coming. Workaholics are like that friend. They give you a rock to hold, and they tell you you won't have to hold it too long. And then they go off to work, and you have to hold it and do more than your share because they're gone. And they're absent at critical junctures in family life, and then they tell you things are going to change in the future, and they never do. And you hold the rock because you trust them. You hold the rock because you love them. And with a literal rock, mental willingness is eventually going to be overcome by physical exhaustion. But with that figurative rock, mental willingness is eventually overcome by emotional exhaustion. And when that happens, you drop the rock. And you always know when you drop the rock, things fall apart in your family. And workaholics hand their families rocks, and in many cases, the family suffers, begins to fall apart, and the finances go south anyway. You know, there's not enough time to get everything done. 
And I just want you to know, excessive work won't solve that problem. You need priorities that are based on scriptures. You need to live out those priorities. And you need to make your priorities God and family and then work. And God says that if you don't do that, you will drop that rock and life will shatter and people will get hurt. It's simply not worth it. And so I challenge you, and I challenge me. I tend to be an excessive worker, a workaholic. Got to get your priorities straight. Stop handing people rocks. There's a final. There's a final type worker here that we see, and it's called the diligent worker. This is the kind of worker that Proverbs emulates. And throughout the Proverbs, it takes the diligent worker, and it pits the diligent worker against the deceitful worker and the lazy worker. Proverbs 10.4, poor is he who works with a deceitful hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And so the diligent worker is everything that the sluggard and the deceiver are not. He's honest. He's a self-starter. He's early to rise. He's prompt. He performs his duties without excuses. He plans his work. He realizes that if he doesn't, he won't eat. He's faithful in mundane tasks, and he's noticed by his superiors. And the diligent worker, Proverbs said, is the one who is truly rewarded. And he'll be satisfied with his work, and he'll earn an honest living that makes enough for his needs, and in many cases, even more than he needs to be generous with other people. And so diligence is the result of strong character. These other workers have, de- have character deficiencies. And the diligent worker is an upright person who has a good relationship with his or her God. And so as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought to myself, I've been around for two years, but I don't know the people at Old North on their jobs. I don't know how diligent they are. So I have to turn to Who would be diligent in the church? And I asked myself the question, who's a diligent worker at Old North Church? Now, I wasn't quite sure, but I had some names come to my mind. So there were a few people in my office staff this week, and I said, let's talk about who do you think would be a diligent worker at Old North? And there are many. But all of a sudden, we realized that what was in my mind was also in theirs, these people. And so one of them was a person by the name of Bill Patisek. Bill, are you in this audience right now? Are, are you? There's Bill. Thank you. I was going to have you stand. You stood in the first. Thank you so much. Bill is one of these diligent workers. Bill is a person who prepares communion every month. This communion just doesn't drop out of heaven prepared. Bill is always interacting with people, and you will see him frequently taking new people on tours all across the expanse of our building facility here. He's a person who's dependable. And I just told my wife last week, if there's anybody I would ever trust to get the job done, it is Bill Patisak. He is a diligent worker. The other worker was Shirley Bush. I think she was in the first service. She's in her late 70s. And she comes in like clockwork every Friday. And right where you're sitting, those pew racks are full because she's making sure the Bibles are there and the cards are there and the pencils and all those. And if she sees something that's not right in the church, she'll go to the custodian and tell them. And she's always mother-henning everything to make sure things are good. She's a diligent worker. And there are many, many others. And I know that those that I lifted up right now wouldn't want this spotlight. But in the New Testament, Paul says, mark those out who distinguish themselves. Let them be examples. And we're so thankful for the diligent workers among us. And so in Proverbs, 
Four kinds of workers. Three you don't want to be. You don't want to be the deceitful worker. You don't want to be the lazy worker. You don't want to be the excessive worker. But the fourth one is the one the Lord commends. It is the diligent worker. Now we all know that on our cars are gauges. And I'm happy for the gauges. We've got a gauge on fuel. It says when we're down. We've got a gauge for oil. We've got a gauge for temperature. We've got a gauge for battery. Many, many, and even though I have all those gauges, there are far too many times I have run out of gas. And I don't like that. But it happens. Now suppose for a moment we could put a gauge on our right wrist if you wear your watch on the left. And on this gauge would be a hand. If you want digital, you've got to invent that. Okay? But for me, it's going to be a needle. Straight up is a diligent worker. Quarter past is the deceitful worker. Down at the bottom is the lazy worker. And over here is the excessive worker. And so you're going through the work day, and all of a sudden, I'm going to check my gauge and see who I am. Lazy worker. Uh-oh, got to change this a little bit. A little bit later on in the day, excessive worker. Oh, I got to change that. And if you had this gauge to keep going to the top, that you become the diligent worker, how wonderful that would be. Well, we don't have a gauge like that, but we have other gauges. We have the Word of God. It's a gauge to tell us how to work like that. We've got the Holy Spirit who gives us the power and the insight and the conviction to understand how a person should live his life. We've got bosses to help keep us on that same track of gauges. There are a number of gauges here, but Solomon is saying when it comes to work, God wants you to be fulfilled. When it comes to work, you need to step into it and keep a balance and be the kind of worker that God commends because when that happens, you will discover in your work you are actually worshiping God and God is blessing you. May we all be that diligent worker. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. shines its spotlight on our heart. And with something so important in our lives as work, we want to get it right. And I pray, Lord, that if we've been flirting with one of these other ways, that you would convict our spirits to stop that. And that we would step up in power and in obedience to the word of God and be that diligent worker that Solomon honors in his text and that we might step in that direction ourselves. And so, God, as we contemplate what kind of worker we are, would you speak to us in any areas of our needs And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, um, we've allowed a little bit extra time to come to the table and slow it down. And there are many times over history that we see that in the early church, they spent a considerable amount of time at the Lord's table. And then throughout the centuries, the church would gather together for a considerable amount of time around the Lord's table. And what happens in modern America, we tack it on to the end of the service far too often. And so today, this being my last communion Sunday with you, I wanted to slow it down a little bit, that we might just enjoy the table of the Lord together, that you would contemplate what it means in your own spirit, and just take some time in this busy, hurried world that we would not rush through this like so often happens in so many churches. And so one of the blessings that we have to kind of launch our time is a friend of a couple of friends of mine, Mike and Nancy Clark, they've come from Erie today from Grace Church, our sister church. And to realize that when Christ gave us his all, he died for us. He gave us everything he had. And they're going to sing a song called Give Me Jesus. And I pray that as we come to the table, that would be your prayer. That indeed, that 
we would have Jesus in our heart in a very special way. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, give me And when I am alone, oh, and when I am alone, and when I am alone, give me Give me Jesus. He gave us his all on the cross. And the night before he went to the cross, he gave us an ordinance that we would celebrate in his church 
And so I want to read from Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And aren't you looking for that day when we finally get together with him around his table and have communion together with our Lord? This is the Lord's table. It is not Old North's table. And if you know Christ as your personal Savior, you are invited to partake of it. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're just forgiven. But if you know there's sin in your life that you haven't dealt with, I'd just back off from that if I were you and let it pass until you take care of that. But otherwise, in harmony with the Lord and fellowship as best you know, he invites us to his table. One of the things I used to do earlier in my ministry is that we would remind people of our church covenant at communion time. And for many churches, they have this church covenant, how you live together in community, and you only see it one time, that's when you join. But this church covenant thing is for people who live together in community and covenant. And I thought this last time that I would be with you, that we remind ourselves what it means to live together in community and in covenant before the Lord. And this is basically for members, but the Spirit is for anybody who might be a regular attender here that you can say that too. So we're going to ask you to join me in reading the church covenant, that this might be part of your aspiration as we live together in community. And what a good time to remind ourselves as the family of God around the table. So join me in reading. Having received Christ as my Lord and Savior, and being in agreement with Old North's doctrinal statement and direction, I am committed to God and to the other believers at Old North to do the following. I will protect the unity of Christ's church by acting in love towards other believers, by working to solve problems and resolve conflict, and by following the leaders as they follow Christ. I will share the responsibility of Christ's church by helping to impact our community for Christ, by developing relationships with and inviting the unchurched to attend, by warmly welcoming those who visit, by participating in a small group or other Bible fellowship group, and by praying for my pastors and leaders. I will serve the ministry of Christ Church by discovering my gifts and talents and being equipped to serve others by actively participating and serving in the ministry of the church by developing a servant's heart, and by encouraging others to grow in their relationship with Christ. I will support the testimony of Christ's church by attending faithfully, by living as a fully devoted follower of Christ, by maintaining an active prayer and devotional life, and by my regular financial support. So I trust these would be goals for you to shoot for as we relate to each other in this body. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take of the bread, and then we're going to take of the cup, one at a time. And as we partake first of the bread and then of the juice, I want you to contemplate and meditate on what it means, his body and his blood for you. And the guitar will be playing, playing lightly as we partake. And I'm going to ask you to hold the elements until all have been served. First, the bread. I'm asking the ushers to come in at this point and serve us. The bread. 
And Steve Christen, one of our elders, I'm asking him to give thanks for the broken body. Tom, there we go. Thank you. Tom Gacy. Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we as brothers and sisters in Christ and your church come together today in unity to commemorate and ask your blessing on this special time of communion. For you did the unthinkable by sending your only begotten Son to die a painful death on the cross for our sins, a sacrificial lamb who took our place. To commemorate Jesus' death that defeated sin, we're about to partake of the elements in communion. As your word states, we're not to partake in an unworthy manner. So let us now examine ourselves and ask forgiveness for the sin in our life and repent. As we hold the bread, which represents your body, which was broken for us, we remember what Jesus went through for our salvation. He did not want us to forget that. So we eat this bread and proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. And as one body in Christ, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So it was that Jesus said to his disciples, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he blessed it. I'm asking Elder Steve Christen to return thanks for the shed blood of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Pastor. As we, as we take this 
juice that represents the blood we pray. Let's please pray with me in your hearts. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much, Lord, for your death on the cross. And we look to this juice and what it represents. It represents your, your death on the cross. So we know that the Bible tells us that without blood, there is no redemption. We're just so grateful for that. The Bible also tells us, though, we are to examine ourselves. So right now, we take a moment to examine our lives. We look back at this past month where, Lord, we've sinned. We've let you down, and we pray for forgiveness. And we know, Lord, that you are a God of grace and that this blood represents that forgiveness. And we thank you so much for that. And now, Lord, what we're going to do is we're going to drink this blood and proclaim and look forward to the coming again of Jesus Christ. So all together we said amen. Then Jesus said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Here's a song that's so appropriate that we close with to kind of seal what we've done around the table of the king. It might be a new song. And it's a video song with words that we can join in. If you know any of it or learn it as you go, would you concentrate on the words and kind of join in as we sing? Would you stand as we seal our time together around the table?